Well, you know, the Lord's Supper, if you stop and think about it, is really kind of a strange custom. I mean, if you were to, if you were to, let's just say a, uh, hypothetically, let's just say a spaceship landed on the parking lot out here at Plum Creek Chapel, and a Martian walks into the back of our service while we're all drinking from these little cups and eating these little tiny crackers, which, by the way, if you follow the mainstream news, it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that a spaceship would land on our parking lot, but that's, that's another story. But uh, you would think, what in the world are these people doing? And in fact, you might also ask, are they people? You might not know who we are because you're from another planet. But anyway, enough of that, enough of that metaphor. But it really is a strange custom. You know, we, the church, 2,000 years in the making now, has two ongoing cultural traditions of what we call ordinances uh, that we are doing uh, as part of the church. Baptism, water baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Now, water baptism isn't all that unique to the church because it's a ancient custom that predates the church by a couple thousand years. Many religions and customs or, or, or cultures have used it. Uh, it's just in the first century, <clears throat> the New Testament kind of takes and it makes it a part of the church as with new meaning. Baptism, of course, is an outward expression of an inward experience. Baptism doesn't save anybody. It's not necessary to get to heaven. It's just something that all believers are commanded to do as a, as a good first step. Again, it's a way to demonstrate to others that you've trusted Christ and been uh, born again, an outward expression of something that's already happened inwardly. But the Lord's Supper, by contrast, was something new. The Passover, as we're going to talk about this morning, wasn't. But to take this and make it into a memorial uh, meal, a memorial custom for the church, was something that was uh, quite uh, unique. Uh, you know, all three of the first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, cover the Lord's Supper. John leaves it out of his account, probably because it came much later, and by then they'd already been doing it for a while. But uh, I want us to focus this morning on Matthew's account. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to bounce around a few places as we talk about the first Last Supper. I want to go back 2,000 years, take us back in our mind's eye, kind of contextualize it a little bit for you. Now, Matthew uh, is, I believe, the earliest gospel, uh, written around 40 uh 47 to or so 80 44 to 47 let's say uh, and uh, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience to convince them that Jesus is in fact the long-awaited Messiah and also the Savior of the world and so uh, Matthew gives this account of the Lord's Supper which as I'm going to explain in just a moment took place on Thursday night in the upper room which most historians think was most likely John Mark's mother's house. That seems to be a lot of historical evidence that that's where the first church met. Um, but wherever it was, it was definitely in an upper room. Uh, they would have rooms on top of their houses, flat ceilings, and they would have open-air type rooms up there. Uh, and so this was Thursday night, the very night that he would be betrayed and uh, arrested, Jesus. And he institutes uh, this uh, Last Supper. So we'll pick it up in verse 26 as they were eating. So the Last Supper was a Passover meal, which always took place on Thursday evening. Uh, you know, there's some confusion. Here we are 2,000 years later. People, based on our English translations and Bibles, 
have picked up on certain verses and uh, tried to, uh, you know, and have misunderstood them and have tried to put, you know, the crucifixion, for example, on Wednesday. Uh, we'll explain why that is here in just a second. Uh, but it's actually not that confusing when you understand the Hebrew uh, culture. So all four Gospels, for example, including John, state that Jesus was crucified, quote, on the day of preparation. The day of preparation was a technical term by that time for Friday because every week uh, preparations had to be made for the Sabbath the next day. The Sabbath, of course, was on Sunday. They had to prepare food ahead of time and those types of things. So this led to the day of preparation becoming the common term for Friday. And so there were other preparations that had to be made annually for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that goes with it. But we never see anywhere in the Bible or in the record of other writings that the day before Passover, Passover Eve, you might say, was ever called the day of preparation. It was always Friday. This is clear enough from Scripture. Mark, Mark's Gospel, for example, in Mark 15, 2 says, quote, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day, of, the day before the Sabbath. So that couldn't be more clear. But if you go to John uh, chapter 19, verse 14, you don't have to turn there, but many people read that verse and mistakenly believe that Jesus died on the day before the Passover meal, which would be Wednesday. John said that Jesus died, quote, the day of preparation of the Passover. And he adds that phrase of the Passover. And so people have misunderstood that to mean that there was a separate preparation day just for the Passover. But that's not at all what he meant. He just meant, the, you know, the day of preparation for the week of Passover, you know, during the week, not for, but during the week of Passover. Greek prepositions are uh, really a, a quite a, a bear to deal with because they can have such a wide variety of translations. Our English prepositions are a little bit more clear. But when Jesus said, I mean, when John said that Jesus died on the day of preparation of the Passover, he just meant on the day of preparation during Passover. Well, the day of preparation was a technical term. It meant uh, Friday. So after the Passover, Thursday, came the day of preparation, Friday, Jesus was killed. Then came the Sabbath, Saturday, and then, of course, the first day of the week on Sunday when he, was, when he rose from the dead. Uh, people also correlate that one verse that I just mentioned in John with a misunderstanding of the Hebrew idiom, three days and three nights. I've talked about this before. I talked about it on Easter Sunday. Uh, unlike English, when we say three days and three nights, we tend to mean 72 hours. That's what we mean. Not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, any part of a day and any part of a night was considered the whole day. So Jesus was in the tomb on a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday. And that's what they call three days and three nights. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. I know in English, three days and three nights sounds like 72 hours. It wasn't. It was any part of a day, any part of a night. And so all of the evidence is pretty clear that Jesus died on a Friday, as he has historically been understood to have died on a Friday, and rose on a, a Sunday. Another, while we're on the subject, another objection you might say to this chronology is from John 18, 28, um, which takes place on Friday and, uh, you know, after Jesus had been arrested. And it says, quote, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover, quote, unquote. So it's 
almost seems like John is implying that although Jesus had eaten the Passover the night before on Thursday, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, the Jewish leaders had not yet eaten the Passover. But, but that's not the case at all. You have to remember that the Passover was the first day of a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first day of the Unleavened Bread coincided with the day of Passover. And in fact, because of the close relationship between Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, sometimes the whole week was just called Passover. And the, the, the two holidays back then were, and, and they still are today, by the way, covered this one single celebration. And so that's, that explains John 18, 28. The Jewish leaders had already eaten the Passover proper, like everyone did on Thursday, but there still were other sacrifices and other meals to be eaten throughout the next week. And they didn't want to defile themselves uh, because it would disqualify them from participating in some of the rest of the ceremonies for that week. So with that background, let's take a look at a chronology uh, of Christ's final weeks. And I looked at this in the context of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, but it bears uh, repeating. So Jesus arrived at Bethany in the outskirts of Jerusalem on a Saturday, uh, March the 28th. This is all in 33 AD. The triumphal entry occurred Monday, March 30th, we celebrate it historically on a Sunday because that's when we meet. So we celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. That's why the church began meeting on Sundays after the resurrection of Christ and the foundation of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, but we historically celebrate the triumphal entry the week before uh, Easter Sunday. But it didn't happen on a Sunday historically. It happened on a Monday. On Tuesday of that fateful week, that's when he had the temple controversy. He curses uh, the fig tree. He cleanses the temple. On Wednesday, he preaches that famous sermon atop the Mount of Olives because the disciples wanted to know when will this kingdom come? What will be the sign of your coming? So we have the Olivet Discourse. And then Thursday, which is where we are in our study this morning, he celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He washes the disciples' feet and he institutes uh, the Last Supper. Later that night, he's betrayed in the garden and arrested. So we're going to be kind of camped out right here on Thursday, April 2nd, 33 AD. But let's finish uh, the chronology here. Uh, by Friday morning early, he's hastily tried and uh, nailed to a cross uh, on Friday, the crucifixion. That, that puts him in the tomb on a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday. On Sunday, April the 5th, he rises from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And then for 40 days, he appears to hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, in his resurrected body, proving that he indeed rose from the dead. Sometime in early May, he gives the Great Commission, which is the marching orders for the church that would be founded 10 days after his ascension. His ascension to the right hand of the throne of God was Thursday, May the 14th. And so we're back here on this Thursday, April the 2nd. And let's go back to Matthew's account. Uh, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he goes on to say, he took, uh, took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. So he says, This is my body, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of of sins. By the way, that phrase there, uh, gave thanks, he took the cup and gave thanks, one word in Greek, 
It's the Greek word eucharisteo. It's where we get the English word eucharist, which many people, especially in sacramental type uh, churches, uh, you know, and Roman Catholic churches, uh, call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. That's where it comes from, of the idea of giving thanks. And that leads me to another sort of preliminary thing that I want to talk about. You know, here at Plum Creek Chapel, we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper typically on the third Sunday of every month, unless it's a five-Sunday month, which happens four times a year. On the fifth Sunday, we have a more focused, dedicated teaching about the Lord's Supper, and we just kind of focus on it a little more in depth. And so that's what I'm doing this morning. And we have so many new folks that have started coming over the last year or so. I just thought it would be good to kind of give a general overview of what we believe the Bible teaches about this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so there are four views in the Christian world today about the Lord's Supper. The first one of these is called transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic view. And the issue here, the reason these four views have developed, is Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. What did he mean? Well, I think you're going to see this morning, it's not that complicated if you understand language. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, through 2,000 years of church history, uh, people have misunderstood this you know, very significantly, leading to this first erroneous view of Roman Catholics called transubstantiation. See, Roman Catholics take it, Jesus' statements to mean that the bread actually, literally, uh, you know, becomes the body of Christ. It literally metamorphosizes into Christ's body. It changes into his body. And the wine, the cup, literally becomes the blood of Christ. And this happens, they believe, as long as a duly authorized priest following the church rules and following this, conducting the service properly, does his part. And then somehow, mystically in that moment, the bread be becomes Christ's flesh, the uh, wine becomes his blood, and therefore when they are partaking, you know, they are actually drinking the blood of Christ and actually eating the body of Christ. Um, and, uh, you know, that they actually believe that. In fact, uh, if you study uh, Roman Catholicism, you find out that every Roman Catholic parish, every church, Roman Catholic church, has, look this up, you'll, you'll find it. I've studied Roman Catholicism in detail through the years. They have a designated spot on their pro physical properties where after uh, the sacrament, as they call it, after the mass, they if there's any leftover elements that the priest has somehow done his thing and turned them into blood and body, they have to dispose of them in that spot. I mean, it, it might be out back under an oak tree or it's just a designated spot. And they so believe passionately that this is literally the blood and literally the body of Christ that they believe that if a squirrel or a, you know, a chipmunk or anything comes along and eats a crumb from the bread in that spot, it goes to heaven. It's now saved because they believe in sacramentalism. That's what they believe, right? But of course, if you read the text, clearly there was no transubstantiation of Jesus. He didn't dissolve before their eyes, become blood, and jump into the cup. He was still right there drinking it with them, eating with them, fellowshipping with them. So, uh, you know, this is, this is something that the church came up with and taught that is not supported by Scripture. Well, the second view is called consubstantiation. This is the Lutherans. Lutherans... Uh, believe, as the word uh, implies here with that prefix con, 
that the body and blood of Christ are present in or with or under, that's what that prefix con can mean, the elements, but he's not physically material present. He doesn't, you know, transubstantiate into blood and, and flesh. He just is, is present there, uh, literally. They believe he's literally liter there. When we, you know, when they sit down at the table, Christ is literally there. He just doesn't transubstantiate into the blood. But they too, like Catholics, believe it is sacramental that by taking the communion, uh, by taking the, what they call the sacrament, they receive divine grace and are thereby saved. Remember, the, the Catholics have seven sacraments that can save you. Uh, the Bible, likewise, does not teach that view as well. The Bible is very clear. There's only one means of eternal life by grace through faith. More than 160 times the New Testament alone conditions eternal life upon faith in Christ. The Old Testament has many passages that speak of faith being the only means of justification as well. Then there's a third view, which we can thank John Calvin for. This is called the spiritual presence view, and Presbyterians uh, hold uh, this view, and that is that the, the spiritual, not literal, but spiritual presence of Christ is in the element. So he doesn't literally, you know, it's not literally his blood, like Catholics believe, or his body, or his flesh. He's not literally present in or with or beside the blood, though he doesn't turn into the blood. But they believe spiritually there is still a sacramental aspect where he's, he's there spiritually and we are partaking of him. And uh, there's an interesting quote by John Calvin in his Institutes talking about this. He said, quote, Now if anyone should ask me how this takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. Well, I'll tell you why it was too lofty. It's because it's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach the spiritual presence view. So the fourth view, and, and what we believe here at Plum Creek Chapel, is called the memorial view. This seems plain enough. When Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he meant this represents my body. This represents my blood. In other words, he was using a statement that we call a metaphor. So now, if you were public schooled like me, that may not really solve the issue. But a metaphor is when you, you make a comparison by comparing one thing to another. A, a metaphor specifically is when one thing is likened to a different thing by being spoke of, spoken of as if it were that other thing. So we see these all the time in Scripture. And, and for some reason, we don't change the, the meaning of those things. For example, in John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. Nobody believes he literally turned into a door with a knob. Uh, Jesus said, you know, I am the sower of the seed. Nobody thinks Jesus literally, you know, uh, shape-shifted into a farmer. <laughs> Jesus said, uh, you know, uh, I am the vine and the branches. In this same context, by the way, John 15, the same upper room discussion, and yet nobody believes he literally turned into a vine. So why do we miss the metaphor here? It's because the church came in, Roman Catholicism, and began to twist the meaning of it. And somehow we've many people have become convinced that he literally turns into blood. He didn't literally turn into a vine, which he said just a few paragraphs later, but he turned into the blood, right? Uh, we use metaphors all the time. Like if I were to say, all the world is a stage. You've heard that one. We don't literally mean the whole world turned into a stage, right? Uh, we've got uh, our kids coming home for on college break, plus our kids that live here, we live at our house and our grandkids. So we've got a house full. And a lot of times when everybody's home, 
we'll play games. We might get a couple games going. We've got, you know, people, the TV on. We've got this. We've just got a lot of activity in kind of the great room there. And sometimes I'll walk in, my head's going to explode, and I'll say, this place is a zoo. Well, I don't literally mean that my children turned into a monkey. They might act like monkeys, but I don't mean they turned into that. It's a metaphor. Everybody understands what a metaphor is, right? Um, that reminds me, I don't know why I thought of this, but it has nothing to do with the message. But I remember years ago, remember when Ross Perot was running for president? And he did an interview after one of the debates. And in the debate, he had talked about one of the, his um, challengers was, uh, uh, he said, they're going to, you know, they want to dismantle the military and they want us to, you know, fight these wars with spitballs. Well, afterwards, the, uh, you know, the, the commentator was interviewing him and he said, now, Mr. Perot, surely you don't really believe that so-and-so, I don't remember who the candidate was, probably, uh, who was it, Clinton back then, uh, uh, you don't really believe that Bill Clinton's going to try to fight battles with spitballs and Ross Perot says, I forget the commentator's name, but let's just say it was you. Now, Joe, don't you know what a metaphor is? I was using a metaphor. I was using, don't you know what a metaphor is? You know? Anyway, that's kind of how I feel about these three views of the Lord's Supper. Don't you know what a metaphor is? It's a memorial. And in contrast to those first three views, we don't see Christ as being present in any special, mystical, literal sense in the, the, the elements. It's a memorial. It's a representation. It's something to call to our minds what he did in offering himself as a living sacrifice for us on the cross. And most churches today, by the way, besides Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Catholics, hold this view. Baptists, Methodists, uh, Bible churches, Evangelical Free Churches, and Berean churches, uh, as we uh, fellowship with that group. We're not a denomination, but we have like-minded churches that we call the Berean Fellowship. Uh, so back to our text. With that background, we hold the memorial view. So Jesus uh, said something interesting at the end of, after, you know, doing the cup and the bread. He says, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Very interesting. Um, just as the first Passover in Egypt looked forward to the deliverance of the Israelites and settlement in the promised land, in the same way the Lord's Supper here in the church looks forward to our ultimate deliverance and settlement in the promised earthly kingdom someday. And you know, if you, if you come at the Bible in its plain normal sense, the New Testament is filled with references to a literal future kingdom. And how anybody can believe the kingdom today is spiritual, to me they're doing the same thing that they're doing with uh, the elements. They're uh, missing the plain normal sense of what's being said there. So we are told in Scripture, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, to observe the Lord's Supper until Christ comes. So we will enjoy uh, this memorial meal only until Christ comes back. And then in the Messianic kingdom, we will sit down all together, as Jesus said in, in Matthew 8. People will come from the east to the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banqueting table. And we will celebrate uh, the, the banqueting supper, the kickoff party, if you will, to the kingdom. So Jesus, you know, is saying here a couple of things. He's saying, first of all, that his death is very near, and indeed within minutes or hours, very soon, he would be betrayed and arrested. But it also reveals that God has a definite eschatological end times program, a definite kingdom program. And someday we're going to sit down with him 
in that kingdom. But until then, we observe uh, the Lord's Supper. And someone put it this way, the Lord's Supper is really just an appetizer for the eschatological banquet someday. That's what it is. And we ought to think about that, as Jesus told the disciples here, every time we come together around the Lord's Supper table. So with that background, I'd like to give you four reasons why we should observe the Lord's Supper. We, the local church, and we all churches, if they're following the biblical prescription. Why should Christians observe the Lord's Supper? Well, the first reason is pretty obvious, and that is it's the Lord's command. The Lord's command. If you go to Luke's account here in the upper room, he said, this, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this. So, do this is one word in Greek. It's a verb, and it's in the imperative mood, meaning a command. This is not optional. You know, the Bible contains a lot of commands that God's people are to obey. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the present age, all of God's people someday. But we should pay, it seems to me, particular attention to those commands that come directly from the Son of God himself, don't you think? And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So the first reason we should observe the Lord's Supper is because Jesus commanded it. Secondly, we do this because of the Lord's cross. And this is what we all think of, I hope, when we gather around the Lord's table. Even those who have an incorrect view of the meaning of the Lord's Supper, they still understand its connection uh, to Calvary. Uh, but we do this because of the Lord's cross. Again, if we go back to our text, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. One of the most powerful statements that I think is in all of Scripture related to the meaning of Christ's work on the cross is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we read, For he, him, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What does that mean? We lost, you lost me? I'm still saved. I don't believe I can lose it. But I can lose my just, signal. Just wild up there. I'm just getting so wild, it's all coming unplugged. I've come unglued before, but I've never come unplugged. Is that better? Okay. So I, I said this is one of the most powerful statements, really, of the sense of, of the substitutionary atonement. Paul said, he made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us. What does that mean? How did Jesus become sin? I think three ways. First of all, God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner when he poured out his wrath upon him. See, sin has to have punishment. Sin invokes the wrath of God. That's why unbelievers are called children of wrath. Believers are called children of God. We'll you know, no longer come under wrath. In fact, if you look at John uh, 3, not on the screen, but John 3, 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides uh, on him. So God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner when he poured out his wrath on him, and Christ bore the guilt and penalty for all people's sins. And that's what Peter said in 1 Peter. Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body, on the tree. And so that's one way that Christ became a sin. But second became sin. Secondly, 
Jesus Christ became a sin offering, the, the, the ultimate, perfect, once for all, sin offering, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. And in the Old Testament, some Hebrew words actually can mean both sin and sin offering. So when Paul says here he became sin for us, he's really talking here about a sin offering. Uh, and thirdly, Christ became sin in the sense that he became the focus of God's judgment in the place in time and space where God wanted to judge sin. It all took place right there. Jesus Christ was the target of God's punishment for sinners. God imputed, that means to charge to his account, God charged to Christ's account in that moment the sins of the whole world. That's why John says he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, don't let anyone tell you Jesus only died for the elect. He died for the whole world. He satisfied the wrath of God for sin for everyone, but it is only appropriated to those who receive it. See, God doesn't force anybody to be saved any more than he forced Adam and Eve to sin in the first place. We were created in the image of God, which means we have volition, we have free will. We chose to sin, bringing upon us spiritual death. God makes the way by uh, paying for our sins through the blood of Christ. And then he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life if you'll simply receive it. If you don't believe it, what did we just read in John 3.36? He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But if you don't believe the Son, you don't, you're not going to see life. Why? Because the wrath of God still abides on you. So that propitiation isn't credited, uh, you know, to your account. So, you know, all of the sin of mankind was imputed, charged to Christ's account. But here's the great part. Now, God makes sinners, you and I, the targets of his righteousness and imputes his righteousness to those of us who believe. The amazing effect from God's imputation, God's imputing, charging to our account his righteousness to believers, is that now God sees his, you know, sees us as his righteous son. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us fully acceptable to him. It's called positional righteousness. It's called being justified. Someone put it this way. As Christ, who knew no sin of his own, was made sin for us, so we who have no righteousness of our own are made the righteousness of God in him. That's called the doctrine of imputation, and it's foundational. Now, once by faith we have been justified, you know, Romans 5.1, I don't have this on the screen, but Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, Romans 3.20 uh, three and four says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Again, propitiation is one of those fancy words. You don't hear it much, but it's a key theological term. It means the satisfying of God's wrath. And when we receive the righteousness of God, God's wrath is no longer targeted at us. The sin has been uh, the sin has been paid for. But when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and I hope you've done that sometime in your life, it's a one-time event. And in that moment, 
You pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment, Jesus says in John 8. And so we are declared righteous. And it's a foundational truth because we are positionally righteous if we know Christ. Now, does that mean we're perfect outwardly while we're still on this earth? Of course not. Because we still have the fleshly nature. We have the old man, as Paul talks about in uh, Colossians and Ephesians, the old man, new man dichotomy. In Galatians 5, he talks about the flesh and the spirit. So positionally, God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his son, our Savior. But practically, if we cater to the flesh, if we walk in the flesh and not after the spirit, if we're not yielding to the Holy Spirit's convicting work in our life, guess what? We can look unrighteous. And that's what happens every time we sin. But it doesn't change our position, right? In the same way that if your children disobey, it doesn't mean they're not a Hickson or a Johnson or a Smith or whatever your family name is. They might not be acting like one. You know, your parent might say, that's no way for a Hickson to act, right? That's no way for a Johnson to act. It doesn't mean they're not one. In the same way, our position never changes. The Bible is so clear about that. We're sealed until the day of redemption through the Holy Spirit. And nothing can change that. We're always part of the family of God. We may not always be in fellowship with God. We're going to talk about that next. But we cannot not be part of the family of God. So that's what Paul means here. You know, Jesus became sin for us because, you know, he was being treated like a sinner when God poured out his wrath upon him. And by the way, it should have been me and it should have been you, which is something to think about as we partake of the fellowship meal here in a moment. But secondly, he became sin because he was a sin offering, the perfect and final one. And then thirdly, he was the focus of God's judgment in that particular place in time, space, and matter. So uh, John talks about it this way, when he, John the Baptist, when he was introducing Christ to the crowd. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, from a practical standpoint, as long as we're topside this earth and the Lord hadn't come back yet to rapture us, we're going to still sin, but we don't have that positional uh, identity as a child of wrath any longer. We're a child of God. Right? So that's the third reason is because of the Lord's cross, or the second reason, the Lord's cross. The third reason is the Lord's coming. Why should we take the Lord's Supper? Because as Paul very clearly tells us, we are to do this only until he comes. And the Lord's Supper not only looks back at the atoning work of Christ, but it looks forward at the return of Christ. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Once he comes back, we'll be able to sit down with him any time. We don't need a memorial. We don't need a metaphor. We've got the real thing, right? Christ will be right there with us. And, you know, he is coming Again, and that's something that the Lord's Supper should always remind us of. And I always think it's such a tragedy for all those churches who have no interest in the return of Christ, no interest in the study of the end times, and yet they still take communion. I wonder why. I mean, what, I mean don't they understand what the Bible says? Here, Jesus himself in the same setting, in the upper room, around the Passover meal, he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself talking about the rapture. That's the earliest reference to the rapture anywhere in the Bible. Uh, he says, I, where I am, you may be also. That's talking about the rapture. But he's going to come again on the Mount of Ascension. Uh, we read, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, this is the disciples, behold, two men in white 
uh, raiment appeared, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Notice, this same Jesus whom you saw, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner just as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming up again. So we observe the Lord's Supper because it's the Lord's command, because of the Lord's cross, because of the Lord's coming. And finally, and this is what I really want to think about this morning, because of the Lord's church. This is, plays a unique role in this present age uh, for building community and fellowship in the church. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That word communion is the Greek word koinonia, and it means fellowship. And different English Bibles translated differently. For example, uh, the NASB here translates this word communion as, sh as sharing, and the NIV translates it as participation. Both of those are helpful uh, English translations of koinonia. Uh, but you know, it's in the King James and the New King James, it's, it's translated communion, which is another reason we call the Lord's Supper communion, right? It's a biblical term. But uh, is this not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion, the fellowship of the body of Christ? Now watch this. For we, though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. You know, this is part of the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to build unity. It's the union in communion. We are all in this together. That last phrase there, we all partake of that one bread, it reminds us we're all in this together. And I was, you know, amazed this morning during the early service you know, I always just pick three men to help uh, serve. I pick, asked three if they would help serve at the end of this message this morning. And I pick three men, and then I get up to lead, uh, you know, when we get to the Lord's Supper, and they come up and they're standing here, I realize it was a perfect picture of the kingdom someday. We had an African-American, an Asian-American, and a European-American. And in the audience, by the way, we had someone from South America sitting right over here. So it was almost like the whole globe was represented. And that's the body of Christ. The church is one blood, one people, all who place their faith in, in Christ. And it's all about a fellowship. You go back to the foundation of the church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Luke tells us they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. That's that word, koinonia, fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. See, that's the common denominator. We're all in Christ, a unique term for believers of the present age. Old Testament saints were not in Christ. You never see that phrase in the Old Testament. Uh, tribulation saints are not in Christ, but the church is the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. That means identified in Christ uh, as part of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you know, the Holy Spirit is some kind of second blessing that you get down the road, that if you're spiritual enough or good enough or pray hard enough or speak in tongues long enough, eventually you'll get the Holy Spirit. That's not the testimony of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the birthright of every believer. The moment we place our faith in Christ, He takes up residence. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is, is what ties us all together. It's the common bond, and it's what builds this 
fellowship. Now, in Corinthians, that local church uh, fellowship had all sorts of problems, as you know, if you know much about uh, the Corinthians. They were having all sorts of issues in the church. By this time, the church was 23 years old. Uh, it didn't take long for problems and politics and disgruntledness and fights and schisms and schisms to creep in. And it, so much so that it was affecting how they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. There was no unity. There was no fellowship around the Lord's table. And so that's a big part of what Paul addresses there, is how they can restore fellowship with one another by recentering on and refocusing on the fellowship that we have with Christ. John's uh, epistle, which he wrote 60 years after the, the, the upper room moment where he established the Lord's Supper, as we've been reading about in Matthew 26, 60 years later, John the apostle, an old man by that time, wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Remember, he was an eyewitness. He walked and talked with Christ. In fact, he was very likely sitting right next to Jesus in the upper room. Here, you know, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says, that which we've seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship, again, fellowship there used twice as koinonia, koinonia, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Are you lacking joy in your Christian walk? Are things depressing, discouraging, discontent? When's the last time you really smiled? Think about the unique, unprecedented, amazing fellowship that we have with the Father through the Son. And then... Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who have that same fellowship. Amen. At the early service, someone introduced me to a guest that was with them, and they said, you know, this is my brother. He said, he's not really my biological brother, but we've known each other for years, and uh, he calls my mom mom, I call his mom mom, and we're like brothers. And he said, I also had the privilege of leading him to the Lord years ago. And so then I said, so you're not just brothers, but he's your son in the faith you know you, you are there's this special relationship among God's people and, um, and and that's something we forget John goes on to say if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another you wonder why there's no intimate closeness in the body of Christ too many people are not walking in the light they're not walking by faith they're not staying in the word church has become just a social gathering for them right at the end of 2 Corinthians, the second letter in the Bible that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion, koinonia, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's what the church needs, this idea of fellowship. And Paul, writing to the Philippians, one of his prison epistles, he implores them. He says, If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being what like-minded having the same love being of one accord and of one mind all of those ifs are first class conditional clauses in greek it means since you know because of all of these things one of which is the fellowship the koinonia of the spirit uh, another traditional phrase that we use in churches is called the right hand of fellowship. That comes right out of Scripture. In Galatians, uh, Paul talks about how these believers that came up uh, from Jerusalem 
gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Well, that's that word koinonia. Think about that the next time you greet somebody here on Sundays during the, the half-hour fellowship time we have between services or as you leave today and you shake their hand or give them a hug. Uh, we're not big on holy kisses around here unless you're married, but uh, you know we, we do some hugging and some handshaking. That's the fellowship. That's the way to connect, right? The fellowship, right? Uh, Hebrews says, do not forget to do good and to share. You know what that word share is? Koinonia, just translated differently here. Uh, by the translators in Hebrews for some reason. So the, 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 the Lord's church is a big reason that he instituted this and told us to do it till he comes. We need this moment of fellowship. We need to be reminded of what ties us together and what we all stand on. So why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Let me just review the Lord's command, the Lord's cross and his coming, and the Lord's church. So I'm going to ask the three men that I've uh, tapped to help d distribute the elements to go ahead and make their way forward. And while they're coming, I'm going to give you this takeaway. If you remember anything that we said this morning about the first Last Supper that we've been examining, remember this. Keep fellowshipping around the Lord's table until the last Last Supper. That's what the church needs. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for... Uh, just this reminder from that special moment, that intimate moment in the upper room. Lord, I pray as we've talked all about Calvary today and sung about the blood of Christ and talked about uh, the sacrifice of your Son and our Savior, that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice either watching on the live stream or in the room that doesn't know Jesus personally by faith, that the Spirit of God would just convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment and their need for a Savior. And today would be the beginning of that new relationship when they become a child of God and no longer a child of wrath. And then I pray, Lord, for the body of Christ here, those that already know you, that you would build up the body here in unity. Uh, help us to remember how much we have in common, even though we may have different walks of life, different uh, interests, different passions, Lord, the common bond is uh, your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask now uh, your blessings on this time as we uh, take part in this memorial uh, meal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.